Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. Modern retail operations are driven by data. The bigger the operation, the more data involved. Very few people in the world understand this better than our guest today. Grant Gelvin is a staff data scientist in store systems for Walmart Global Tech, which means he works retail prediction problems on the largest scale every day. Grant, thanks so much for taking the time and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. Hey, thanks, Noah, so much. Really excited to be here. So uh, let's get into it. Everybody knows Walmart. You, you hear the name Walmart, you think retail, you think big. Can you give us a taste of the size of the retail prediction problems you're facing? Maybe actually start out for the audience by telling us what a retail prediction problem is and then kind of get into this the scale of what you're working on. Oh, sure, sure. That is, uh, that's a great question. So when, when we talk about retail prediction problems, what, what we're talking about is, is really leveraging the, the large amount of enterprise data that we have available at our disposal uh, about our stores, our items, our customers, et cetera, and to, to really enable the, the operations uh, of Walmart to improve efficiency and, and customer experience. And, and we do this for a, a range of different types of business use cases, whether it's pricing, like you mentioned, or replenishment, or assortment optimization, things of that nature. I, I mean, really, there are hundreds of, of different specific prediction problems that, that we can leverage big data and machine learning to, to help solve and improve. Can you give us a, a sense of how large Walmart Global Tech really is, and that can be in terms of stores or number of items you're dealing with, or what's I don't know some of the metrics that you use to describe it. Uh, uh, yes, uh, Walmart is Walmart is big. We can <laughs> we can all agree on that. But to, to give you an idea of, of the the scope and scale of these prediction problems, uh, you know, in the in the U.S. alone, you know, we have nearly 4,600 stores. Uh, operating within about 10 miles of almost 90% of the U.S. population. Right. And so what, what that means is that, you know, every week on average, about 200 million shoppers uh, walk through our doors. I mean, we're talking almost two-thirds of the country. That's a lot of people. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of people. And you know, when you talk about the the prediction problems, we're usually making predictions about items or you know stores or prices of items. Uh, well, the average stores got over a hundred thousand distinct items in it, right? And when we're solving these prediction problems, we do it at a very fine grained level. So, making a prediction about bananas in a store in LA is different than making a prediction about you know, those same bananas, say, in Seattle. So solving these prediction problems, really it means we have to be able to make predictions about hundreds of millions of distinct units that are distributed all over the country. Now, is e-commerce in your purview as well? Or are you, uh, I mean, you have plenty on your plate if you're retail only, I don't want to put it that way, but are you focused mostly on the in-person stores? No, no, I, I focus almost exclusively on, on U.S. stores. Got it. Okay. And so what are some of the types of predictions that you're making and how does machine learning play a part? in uh, the modeling that you're doing. Let's talk about that first, and then we can get into the scale a little bit. Yeah, sure. You know, one of my, one of my most recent endeavors has, has been um, building a dynamic pricing system. 
Now, obviously, there there are a, a lot of different ways for, for us to choose prices at Walmart, typically dependent on, on the types of items. But, um, you know, one of the things that, that I'm most familiar about is a real-time dynamic pricing system that is used for markdown pricing of perishable goods. Okay. So the, the basic business use case here is that, you know, in, in those departments like uh, we have fresh produce, meats, vegetables, seafood, et cetera, right. we want to avoid having excess food waste. Sure. We, we don't want to throw them away. We, we want to get them out the door. And, and so we try to choose a price that's going to solve that specific problem right there. So that, that, that's just one example. And so uh, you mentioned um, real-time dynamic pricing. What are some of the advantages of dynamic pricing, both on the consumer end and then also uh, for your suppliers? Is it mostly about the elimination of you know things like food waste that, that you mentioned, or are there other benefits as well? So with dynamic pricing, you know, there was really three specific problems that we had to solve. The the most important, if you ask me, is is the uh, the elimination of food waste, which is you know not just good for customers; it's it's good for everybody, it's huge, right? You yeah. know that yeah, this is uh, has an environmental impact. Uh, the the next problem that we had to solve is that we had to have very accurate predictions on the effective demand of these items, and and we're talking to hundreds of millions of units a year, yeah, right. You know that, as as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, choosing the right price at, at those volumes, um, that's very important for our business partners and our suppliers. And then thirdly, you know, because of the way that uh, the the stores and, and our business processes are designed, we don't necessarily know when we have to discount an item. You know, we we work rather we enable the associates to tell us when it's time to go discount these things, and so. Making it real time, giving those predictions uh, on demand is really making those associates' lives better sure. as opposed to having them know everything under the sun, right, when right. it comes to when you should discount things. Right, right. I can only imagine, you know, the the bananas in L.A. versus bananas in another part of the country in your example. You know, you just yeah. want to know, look, I've got all these bananas. They're going to go bad. What should I price them at? You don't need all the yeah. all the data. In that case, yeah. So, so we, yeah, we built this this recommendation system to allow those associates to choose those prices, you know, in, in a fraction of a second. So maybe walk us through how um, how you're using machine learning, and when it comes to developing uh, the models that you use to inform this system, what's your timeline like? What's your workflow like in terms of you know structuring them, training them, deploying them? How many models you have going on? Let's let's dig into the tech a little bit, if if you would. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of items over the course of a year, you're, you're talking about very large uh, amounts of data. Sure. Which, correspondingly, if, if you're going to, you know, accurately estimate um, whether or not these these items are, are going to sell at a given price, it, you have to have very large models, models that are expressive is what we call it, in the number of parameters. And so that naturally leads to a, a, a scaling problem. Sure. Right. But we have to scale in terms of the amount of training data that we have. Uh, we have to scale in terms of the the size of the models that we have to train. So this requires some some pretty heavy duty hardware and you know some some pretty cool open source software to get that problem done. 
What uh, what are you guys using? Uh, so, you know, one of the main things that I'm talking about is really a, a number of different ways to to scale by leveraging open source packages, uh, some of them developed uh, by NVIDIA and relatively recently, uh, to enable GPU acceleration. Uh, and, and there's really two components here when, when we talk about GPU acceleration. One that's really been around for years is using GPUs to actually train these really large deep neural networks. Mm-hmm. And it's to the point now where when you're talking hundreds of millions of parameters in these networks, it, it would be physically impossible <laughs> um, to, to train them w- without GPUs. Right. And really, you know, that, that's kind of table stakes today. Yeah. Right. The, the industry understands. But one of the cool things that we've been looking at more recently is is actually leveraging GPUs to not only train the networks, but but to do a lot of the, the pre-processing and data munging beforehand to, to get that data in shape. So, you know, recently we've been taking a look at NV Tabular to do that, and we've since seen some pretty promising results so on the same order of the, you know, the scale from the CPU to the GPU when you're talking about training. Wow. Um, so, so we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. And what about scaling? My understanding is that you've, over time, been able to simplify uh, how you approach scaling. How has that changed in the past few years? So, so let's take a step back and, and talk about how things kind of have always been uh, up Great. until recently. You know, it'd be useful to understand the, the typical data scientist workflow. Uh, you know, you, you get some idea, you have a small sample data set, you take your laptop, you go to town, you, you build some prototype. Then you might even run a, run a pilot right. and you're like, hey, this is great. Now, how do we thousand X this? Right, right. Right. You know, and how do we do that quickly? Well, the problem is, historically, is that as soon as you go to, to 1,000 exit, you've got a whole new toolkit that, that you have to go learn, right? So everything is, is hard the first time you do it. <laughs> right. So if you're going to learn a whole new thing at each stage of the scaling and operating process, that's, that's fundamentally going to you know, increase your timeline. Sure. Uh, and, and so what I've found and what, what we found at Walmart, what it allows us to, to both scale in terms of data volume and, and the size of models and, and then do it quickly, is setting up workflows and using tools that allow you to leverage with very small changes. The, the code that you developed on day one is also the code that you're running on day 98. Right. Right. And some of these, these new open source tools, I, I think, are going to turn out to be the winners because they allow that process to move through each of those stages of scaling relatively seamlessly. How long have you been uh, working on data science problems at Walmart? Uh, at Walmart, I've, I've been working for about two and a half years, and I've been a enterprise data scientist for, for about six. Okay. So in, in either time frame, the two and a half or the six, how much would you say that scaling in particular and the advances in what you're talking about with being able to use the same tool sets, you know, from from 1x to 1,000x and not having to keep relearning new tools for each stage, how much would you say that's changed over the past, you know, again, two and a half years, six years, whichever, and how big of an impact? It sounds like that's a, a really big impact on the kind of work you're doing. Oh, I, I mean, just over over the last five years in general, you know, this problem has been, I, I think, ubiquitous uh, across yeah. enterprise. You know, five years ago, you were doing well 
to go from concept to a, a production model and operations in under a year. Right. And with the exception of just, you know, the elite few, it's only been until relatively recently that uh, enterprises are able to use machine learning and production to solve real business problems and, and do that with sufficient numbers so that you can start actually improving the customer or the user experience by giving them something that resembles an intelligent system. Our guest today is Grant Gelvin. Grant is a staff data scientist working on store systems for Walmart Global Tech. Grant, you mentioned uh, you've been working on this kind of stuff at Walmart for a few years now, and more broadly, on enterprise-scale data problems for about six years or so. How did you get into the field, and uh, have you always had an interest in these extremely large data sets, or is this something that's kind of organically uh, developed the way sometimes these things do in the course of someone's career? Good question. I've always been a problem solver. In a previous life, I was I was actually a physicist, uh, and, and spend most of my time, you know, doing large scale numerical simulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, even before entering the exact field of solving business problems with data science, I, I've always been using large amounts of data and large computers and and you know, relatively complex mathematical models too you know, understand the world and, and presumably predict what's going to happen next. And so where did the uh, the shift from physics to business data happen? Yeah, you know, that that's not entirely clear. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think what you'll find for, for a, lot of, a lot of people who would just call themselves a problem solver is that, you know, it just put something in front of them mm-hmm. and they'll be happy. Right. It, it, it just so turns out that a lot of the tools that you use in, in data science and machine learning today are are the, the same tools that, that I, you know, learned in college um, studying math and physics. It's really just a matter of context. I was going to ask, we've had a lot of guests who, um, you know, obviously come from different scientific backgrounds, but folks who weren't weren't necessarily, um, you know, computer scientists, so to speak, who kind of had to learn to code a little bit to use some of the tools to solve the problems they were working on in physics or, you know, organic sciences or what have you. And then that kind of sparked this interest or this sort of career path into what we think of more as computer science or, or data science problems. So, um, yeah, that that resonates for sure. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, you know, it's totally anecdotal, but but I, I would actually conjecture that, you know, more recently of all the people that, that may have been formally trained in physics, there are more of them that hold the, the title data scientist than hold the title physicist. Right, right. So you mentioned we've been talking about, you know, the, the scale of everything and, and this word dynamic kind of has speed kind of built into it. But how big of a concern or a, a priority is speed uh, in the work you're doing and in Walmart, you know, more broadly? So really, I, I think speed is important for, for any enterprise. We can probably all agree on on that. And, and there's there's a number of ways that you could quantify the, the impact of speed and, and delivery to market in terms of profits or labor, or market share, et cetera. But I personally actually kind of look at this from a, a more qualitative point of view. And I do that by thinking about the customer. Mm. It almost did almost a human level. You know, one one great example, you know, comes from about this time a year ago. 
with you know the emergence of our our current public health crisis mm-hmm. you know th- there were a lot of americans that that really needed uh walmart so to speak yes um at that time for for essential goods and and the the ability for an enterprise and, and obviously this goes beyond machine learning but the ability for an enterprise to to react to market conditions or to a crisis and, and give customers exactly what they need when they need it I think is probably one of the most important things that that a business or service provider can can do. Well, I was thinking about this, and and you brought it up. Um, you know, obviously we're we're taping this at the end of March, uh, twenty twenty one, and we're about a year, a little over a year into this uh, global global pandemic. And so I'm thinking about Walmart, and thinking about what you're saying, and thinking about you know everybody trying to stock up on toilet paper, trying to stock up on flour, trying to stock up on on PPE, obviously, and and back in sort of a, the early days a year ago, hand sanitizer and and things like that. And what sort of new challenges or how how much in the realm of new challenges did the pandemic and the the lockdowns and store closures and things like that kind of pose for your work in particular? Oh yeah, sure. So I, I think it, it it obviously changed a lot for everybody, but but one of the things that that immediately comes to mind is uh, we, we almost instantly saw a pretty large shift in in the the purchasing behavior right. of our customers, and you know th- this is directly relevant to to machine learning, particularly supervised machine learning, and you know it. We were fortunate to find out that that we we actually did our jobs uh, as as practitioners in in building models for a, a number of different things that were robust to this this massive shift in the environment in which the models were were operating in. Right, and, and, and so that was that was a big win, but but it was also kind of a wake up call, right? Because Historically, the nature of supervised learning is, is, especially when you use it to solve a business problem in the real world, you're making this assumption that that the past is going to be representative <laughs> of what is to come. Sure. Right. And you know, fortunately, we we did our jobs well um, there this time around. But in general, it's made us be much more cognizant of how you can plan for the unknown. And when it comes to machine learning, that that is obviously an open and very active study and, and field of research. Right. So along those lines, um, what's next for for retail prediction systems and more largely the kind of data science work you're doing in the enterprise and in retail? Do you have any thoughts you can share on what systems like the ones you're working on will be able to do in the coming years or, or even how things might shift given what you were just talking about, you know? kind of revisiting these, uh, I don't know, assumptions, but sort of subconscious things about, oh, you know, well, we're basing this on the way things have always been and now having undergone this big shift. You know, what do you see coming down the pike over the next couple of years, five years, whatever time frame? So in the coming years, I think first we we need to talk about the loaded term that is AI, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, artificial intelligence. And, and for me, the way that, that I think about AI is for it to, you know, be perceived by an end user to act intelligently, mm-hmm. right? And I keep that definition in mind, that very broad scope, and keep it separate from uh, machine learning precisely, which is, you know, just learning a function from data. The the current state of affairs now, particularly in retail, is when when you're applying machine learning to solve a specific problem, it's very narrow scope. 
Right. But over the the months and years to come, you're just going to see a very large proliferation, uh, both in the variety of data that we have available to 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 build machine learning models with, uh, but within the number of models themselves, and you know, therefore, the, the the size of the system that's being enabled by these ML predictions. And so, what what I think is is really going to happen from the user's point of view is that when you have this really large complex system of, of hundreds or thousands of models all working at the same time, you kind of get this emergent phenomenon where the system as a whole is working better for, for you, the customer. Right. There's that. I, I, I keep coming back to uh, you know this idea of the technology being transparent. And so to the end user, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure what the AI is doing, but I know it's helping me. And uh, that's kind of where we want to get to. Well, Grant, we appreciate all the work you've been doing. And as you said, you know, uh, talking about retail on this scale and the types of products that Walmart stocks and sells. And certainly in the past year, as you mentioned, it's been a literal lifeline for lots of people to get what they need during this difficult time. So um, all the work you and your team are doing is, is greatly appreciated by all of us out here. For folks who want to know more, obviously, there's the GTC talk that we've been mentioning, and eventually these things will be online. People can check out. But uh, are there other places online, blog, Walmart resources, that kind of thing, where people can go to learn about the kinds of work that you and your colleagues are doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Um, please uh, come see my talk at GTC. You know, it's it's open and, and free to everybody. Yep. Uh, but but also we'll be doing some follow ups on some technical details and some blog posts on the, the Walmart Global Tech blog on Medium. Uh, and, and then I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. So feel free to, to follow me there. Excellent. Well, again, Grant, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. And as we record it, best of luck uh, at your GTC talk. And as people are listening to this, perhaps, um, go check out Grant's talk. It was fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much. No, I appreciate it. 